Do we promote people to leadership because they're good in a crisis situation and then they take that same situation on a daily basis when they're, for want of a better word, back at the office? Um, or do we, do we promote them because they are good at building relationships and building teams and making sure everybody is included and we, we gather up their ideas and we collaborate? Do we promote them for that? And then people will accept that in a crisis situation, it's do this, do that. I'm not going to say please. You can't have the military getting into a huddle if there's a sniper on the roof. It just makes them an easier target, you know? Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. My name is Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. We're going to continue a bit of a theme of a recent episode uh, in today's conversation. Very recently, we explored the downsides of a command and control approach to management and looking a lot more at enabling uh, teams to to work with the leader and to, to, to work together collaboratively and as a team in order to get the best results. Uh, and I'm joined today by someone who focuses very much on helping organisations do just that. So our theme today is taking your team with you. Uh, and my guest is someone who's been running leadership programmes for organisations like Boots, like Coca-Cola, Unilever, all over the world for the last 25 years. Uh, she, her speciality, although she runs leadership programs, her background is in neuropsychology. So everything she teaches, everything she shares is backed up by neuroscience. And I've also had the pleasure of seeing her perform on stage. And she does so with great gusto, great humor and excellent insights and expertise as well. So of course, she's going to bring all of that to the Connected Leadership Podcast. So Heather Wright, no pressure at all. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Andy. That's great. I'd certainly, you know, I don't believe in under-promise and over-deliver. I believe in over-promise and over-deliver beyond that. And I'm sure you're going to do that because every time we've had a conversation, I've definitely enjoyed it. So let's get straight into our theme. Uh, taking your team with you. And I talked about how a couple of weeks ago we looked at it, it, the downsides of command and control and whether it was still prevalent, whether the landscape was shifting and, and what's impacting it. What, what's your view of that? How do you see the current landscape? Do you think leaders still rely on command and control? Do you think employees still expect it and respond to it? Or are you seeing changes in the workforce? I've been seeing change in the workforce for 25 years, which says more about my age than necessarily the, the, the landscape particularly. Um, and I've definitely seen changes. I think there's been a big shift since the pandemic, and that's because people have experienced the hybrid working model and they've started to rather enjoy having the freedom of not being under their leader's nose. And I think that's changed things. However, I would say that my son went into the Marines when he was 18, and I was shocked, if you naively shocked at the leadership style. Obviously, it was command and control, and it made me consider quite a lot of things like, are there particular times in an organization where we need command and control? I've actually done a lot of work with the emergency services, so police organizations, fire service organizations, and 
end up saying to them, listen, command and control is massively outdated. Neurologically, it doesn't work. We have a resistance to being told what to do. We need to have high self-esteem in order to perform chemically. We need to have high self-esteem in order to perform for our brains to think creatively. However, in an emergency situation, so army, police, fire service, and in, obviously in, in maybe in, a, in some cases in the NHS, some, sometimes in the NHS, there needs to be absolute clarity as to what's happening. So somebody may step up and there may be a command and control in an emergency situation. Obviously, if you're sending firefighters into a building, you've, you've got to know where they are. They've, you know, we watch them on TV, don't we? And you've always got the rebel who doesn't answer. It just doesn't work. People die if we do that. But the difference is, do we promote people to leadership because they're good in a crisis situation and then they take that same situation on a daily basis when they're, for want of a better word, back at the office? Um, or do we, do we promote them because they are good at building relationships and building teams and making sure everybody is included and we, we gather up their ideas and we collaborate? Do we promote them for that? And then people will accept that in a crisis situation, it's do this, do that. I'm not going to say please. You can't have the military getting into a huddle if there's a sniper on the roof. It just makes them an easier target, you know? I, I think that that differential, uh, differentiation is key. And as you were saying that, that's where my mind was going. Um, that are people likely to be more responsive to command and control in the appropriate crisis environment if they have high levels of trust and a strong bond with the leader who's guiding them through that crisis. Absolutely. And, and of course, that's what the military do. In the first part of their training, they develop an absolute trust of their teammates as well as their leaders so that when they are told, when they are yelled at in no uncertain terms, um, and obviously in the military being yelled at is... is um, more common than say you know the NHS or the fire service, um, but certainly it's about building trust first of all. But if we don't do that, if we can't trust them, and you've got an underlying fear that well that person's just power hungry, that person just likes the sound of their own voice, then that resistance prevents us even in a crisis from doing as we may need to do. So absolutely, there has to be that building of relationships, and there has to be conversations. A lot of the times I've found. Um, when I'm so let's say I'm coaching someone one on one, a leader, uh, and, we, and then we start talking about issues they've got with their team, a simple question like, "Okay, when was the last time you got your team together and you agreed how you were going to communicate? You agreed basically the rules of engagement of the team, the teamship rules, as as they have been known, as well as the leadership rules." And they kind of go, "Oh, well, we uh, we do a, a briefing. Uh, is that what? You, no, no." Not about what we're going to do that day and what projects. I mean, actually about behaviors so that you can say to them as a leader, these are the times when I'll be soft and, <laughs> and we'll chat and all of that. And these are times when I'm going to say, do this, do that. No questions at this point. And this is the reason. And, and, and they all haven't done that. And as soon as they start doing it, they start getting more out of their teams. And for me, sometimes it seems like I've, I've done something really, really simple. But the results are huge, disproportionately better results for the effort put in. Okay, so there's a couple of things I want to dig a bit deeper into there. Mm -hmm. So we're going to come back to that open style of communication uh, within the leadership. But before we do that, uh, you talked about building that trust 
between the team members and, and between the team member and, and the leader as well. We, next week's episode of the Connected Leadership Podcast, we're going to be looking at the line between personal and professional and how um, how personal can you get with professional contacts? How much of a, a relationship style, a personal relationship can you build with them? How much of yourself should you share? Let's take that into the workplace then. Uh, both within the team and between the leader and the team, how important is it to build that personal relationship around liking each other, if that's possible? Uh, and where is the line? You know, I remember my first, you know, my first years in work before I started working in, in very small family business. Uh, you know, the, the highlights of the week were, were Friday lunchtimes and evenings in the pub together. I think my first job, it was every lunchtime and, and, and several evenings. Uh, and, and, you know, we would see senior leaders, you know, really sort of knocking back quite a few drinks. Where, when is that appropriate and when is it not? And how do you get the balance right? Well, that's interesting. And I spent, I spend a lot of time talking about standards and how we set standards. One of the things we forget to do with our teams is talk about standards, behavioral standards. We expect they learned it at home. And, uh, and of course, we all have completely different family backgrounds and what's appropriate and inappropriate in the workplace. People will have different opinions of us. We have to do that. But one of the standards we talk about is the fun standards, which is the if, you, if we're all going out to the pub, it doesn't suddenly become okay to not be inclusive, to be racist, to crack particular jokes. Um, with regard to the leadership and the personal side, I believe it's really, really appropriate to share your family background and stuff like that. And, and I, I often ask a leader if they could stand up at that moment and say, this is my leadership style. These are the values that are important to me and these are why they're important to me. If you can't do it straight away and you can't actually vocalize it, then you, you need more clarity on it and you need to be able to do that. So I think your team members need to know where you're coming from because you're not always, we're always having a communication with somebody where we say one thing because there's a lot of thoughts going on in our head and we make assumptions that they know how we came to that point. So we have to have those. I think when it's not appropriate is if you're sharing all of your emotions. Uh, so if at that particular moment you're actually frightened about the organization, you think it's going to get saved, but you may have to do some stuff that will be really, really scary for you, that, that's when it, you, we don't want to scare the team. We don't want to scare the team about something that may never happen. So there's those kind of sides. We don't, so we do vulnerability, but it's a professional vulnerability. They need to know that we have a family that we care for maybe, or, you know, we're particularly fond of our cheese plant and it's not taking on what, I don't know, whatever it might be. Um, so I, step one in any leadership program or any leadership uh, takeover of leadership, so I'm, I put that very badly, is building relationships. We have to build relationships. Now, I think people were frightened of building relationships, especially when it came to the, do you remember the, the crash and the credit crunch, 2007 yeah. kind of times? And I think actually leadership took a hit at that point. People were l less authentic. And I think the reason was they were scared that at some point they were going to have to sit opposite somebody and maybe tell them that they hadn't got a job. And they thought it would be easier to do that if they distanced them. And I meet a lot of leaders who say, well, how can, if I've built a relationship with someone, how could I discipline them if they're not performing? Or indeed, if we get to the point where I have to actually let them go, how can I do that if I know them? 
And actually, I think you have to know them so that the style in which you do it is done right. But one of the other things we need to do is we need to build relationships. And in that, we need to build in there, a, again, a, a rules of engagement. What are we going to do when we're cheesed off with each other? How do you prefer knowing? And it's best to have that conversation before you're cheesed off with each other. You know, you don't do it when you go, right, how would you like me to tell you that I'm cheesed off with you? And you go, I'd like you to do it this way. Right, great. Now, now we've got that away. Let me tell you. It's wrong. But we do it when there isn't anything wrong. So right, hopefully right at the beginning of those relationships, let's talk about it. And, and also the other one is to offer to say, listen, at some point in this relationship, I know I'm your leader, but I'm going to cheese you off. I'm going to do something wrong and it's because I'm stressed or because of this and it's wrong. That doesn't mean you shouldn't call me out, but let's talk about how we're going to handle that because I'm open to it, provided it's done in the right way, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's all part of that building relationships and building trust and building absolute authenticity so that they know that you're a human being. Uh, and depending on the age of, of people, they might have come directly from college or even school where there was an absolute divide of what you did and didn't say to the teachers, quite rightly, because you're a kid and you don't always know when the, where the line is. And so you've got these leaders on a pedestal and you almost believe that they aren't human, weirdly. <laughs> so we have to have those conversations and we have to be authentic. But like I say, not, not necessarily sharing all of our deepest, darkest emotions uh, with everybody at every moment. <laughs> I'm, I'm, as I said, I'm going to come back to that. Um, but I, this is advice I'd wish I'd heard 30 years ago. And, you know, there's, there's two examples I can think of, one from my own career and one from conversations I've had that show the, the two sides of what you were just saying. Um, my, my first management role, I was fresh out of uni myself. You know, I was 22, 23. And I was managing people who were closer to me in age than most of my colleagues, most of my peers. You know, there were other managers on the team who had been in a job longer than I'd been alive. Uh, and then I'm managing people who were 17, 18, and I'm 22. And I'm managing people who were 40, 50, 60. And I didn't know that. And I, you know, with the, I remember particularly there was a, a 17 or 18 year old girl on the team. Um, I was 22, 23. Naturally, I gravitated towards her in in a when I say a personal relationship way I don't mean in a romantic relationship way but just I could uh, I could relate to her more than I could to the the the, the 40 50 year olds uh -huh. um and and she was under my auspices and when it came to her review my colleagues were all saying she's got to get a low appraisal or bad appraisal and I was I, I didn't know how to do that and it damaged the the connection because we hadn't established those rules of engagement and, and the similar thing happened with um, another member of my team who was a lot older than me. Um, and I took it on myself to try and encourage him to pick up his game and, and do better and do more. He didn't want to. He was happy cruising. And we hadn't never had the conversation about what he wanted from his role. I didn't know how to do that. Um, so I think that damaged me permanently in terms of how I perceived myself as a manager never wanted to manage since even in my own business you know I've always said take on staff then someone else can manage them because I'm a rubbish manager and I have this belief based on what happened when I was 23 22 23 years old which is really interesting and the, I think the, that that becomes cyclical though doesn't it Andy yeah. because you've had that bad experience it doesn't 
make you necessarily a better manager. It actually makes you want to avoid having conversations yeah. and therefore it builds a, a gap. So I find that there are people who are terrified of having those conversations because they didn't have it right the first time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have I have people that work with me in my business and for me in the business, but the people who work for me are um, effectively freelancers. I don't manage them. And I haven't managed anyone since I was 29 years old and left corporate life. Uh, and it, it basically embedded a belief in me. It might be true. <laughs> Just because it's a belief, think, it doesn't mean it's not true. Uh, sometimes, sometimes I'll speak to people uh, in a role where they've got to manage people, but without authority. Hmm. And I think that's actually a really good place to learn how to do it. So my my kids, um, we, we're a martial arts family. A lot of families have a thing, don't they? We're a swimming family. We all play tennis. We all play instruments. We're a martial arts family. Um, and my eldest son got his first black belt when he was 13 years old. And he strutted into the dojo and tried to give a 36-year-old woman press-ups for not doing as she was told. And she just basically said, stuff you, <laughs> you 13-year-old squirt. And he went, but I'm a black belt. But I'm a black belt. And I took him to one side and said, you've got to learn to lead without actually the authority of your age. You've got to learn to persuade. You've got to learn to build credibility. You've got to learn to you know, build those relationships because they're not going to do it just because you're a black belt. They're looking at you. You're 13. And what's more, they've paid to be here. You're not paying them to be here. It's a very different thing. But I think that really, really helped him because he had to learn to do it from a young age and he had to learn persuasion and he had to learn charm isn't it wouldn't be going too far to, to to use the word charm you know you had to learn to charm people but still get the best out of them now of course at that point he'd still had to correct them but it was a bit different but it was quite a nice way to start and i think if you have to lead without authority or um influence without authority i think that's a really good place to learn leadership i i, I couldn't agree with you more you know go uh, fast forward in my career and by the way remind me never to cross you or your family uh with, all these, with I, all these martial arts skills and marines well. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I I, I I i plan to stay on your good side as as, as much as i possibly can as it should um, be andy as and it that's should be. and that's why professional relationships are so important because you don't know whose sons are black belts and marines <laughs> We hope that you're taking away some valuable lessons from this edition of the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you would like support in developing, nurturing, and leveraging strong relationships to support you in your role, please visit andylapata.com forward slash mentoring. But yeah, fast forward in my career when I was 29 years old and I got involved in networking groups, I was going into the networking groups and I was telling our chairman of our groups what to do. And, and I got pulled over to one side at one point and I was told, you're 29 years old and you're telling a partner in one of the biggest law firms in, in, in the UK what to do. And that was, I didn't have the authority to lead. And, and that was a big um, sea change point for me, a, a pivot point in my career, um, because I dropped the arrogance, or I tried to. Some might argue I haven't, but I tried to drop the arrogance. <laughs> I'm um, saying nothing. I'm saying nothing. <laughs> um, but, but, yeah, I, I think leading without authority is a really interesting area. I said I said that your your previous answer brought up two experiences, so I, I mentioned mm -hmm. mine. The other one is I interviewed Phil Gardner for Just Ask, for my book Just Ask, and Phil was the sales and marketing director at Thomas Cook, 
uh, and he was at Thomas Cook for a long time, and he was sales and marketing director when it folded. And uh, one thing that, that um, Phil shared with me uh, in, in detail, and I can't remember if, if we had him on the podcast talking about this. We definitely talked about it, but off the top of my head, I can't recall. Um, but we'd certainly, for, for Just Ask, we had the conversation. Uh, he talked about the day they went bankrupt and having to go in and uh, tell, he had to let, I think he had a team of 250 people and he had to let 90% of them go that day with no, none of the wages for the month they'd worked to date, no, you know, no uh, idea of what was going to happen. But basically it was go in and tell them go home. Uh, and it was a very moving conversation. Uh, you know, me with him was a moving conversation. Obviously the conversations he had on the day, uh, even more so. But what he told me got him through it. And I can't quote directly off the top of my head, but what what got him through it was the the relationships he'd built with them over the over the years the trust they had in him and their knowledge of where he came from and he said there was one moment where he was in the canteen at lunch and there was quite a junior member of his team who saw him and turned around and said how are you coping and he went into the toilets and cried because he'd just been getting through it so i think there's a couple of things there i think is that it's to validate what you were saying about if you have, you know, I don't know what conversations Phil had had with that team about how I'm going to be, but knowing Phil, he's the type of leader that I look up to. I, 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 I've talked about it on the podcast before, uh, but it's a while ago, so I'll share it again. I always think of my first three bosses when I think of management styles, and it's my Goldilocks story because mm-hmm. my first boss was too cold. And he used to sit there and just talk to his mates, be be really cool with me, tell me what to do. He told me off for saying schedule instead of schedule because schedule was Americanized. Um, and I was like, so what? <laughs> um, because he didn't have that respect from me to, to tell me off for that. Um, my second boss was too warm uh, in that he was a furry teddy bear. You know, and he was everyone's best friend. But when he tried to tell you off, you didn't take him seriously. And then my third boss, this is all in the same job. Uh, third boss was just right in the you could go for a drink with him in the pub. You could get on really well with him. We weren't too far distant in age. We could relate to each other. But when you stepped over the line, he pulled you back very quickly and you respected it. Uh, and, and I think that Phil strikes me as that type of guy, mm. that he will be uh, congenial he'll be friendly he'll be easygoing he, he'll be exactly the type of person who would take his team with him but if someone stepped over the line you could see him pulling them back and you know how much to you is that an important element of style because that comes to the rules of engagement doesn't it yes it does and one of the things that always frustrates me is when i hear stories of leaders who aren't actually correcting performance and I remember one young lady who I think had been promoted a little too early uh, on a program. And she said to me, she says, oh, I, you know, I'm not going to get to know the, the people I work with. I don't even particularly like them. Um, I'm not going to spend any time getting to know them. Um, I said, well, you, you have to take that's part of your job. It's what you're getting paid to do. You don't get to choose whether you like or dislike them. Obviously, not everyone's going to be someone you invite to your barbecue. But you have to find a way to, you have to respect them in some ways. You have to know what they're good at, et cetera, et cetera. And you have to pull them up 
if needs be on their performance. You said, oh, I can't do that. I said, in that case, you need to give your wages back. And here was another, here was another point where I, I remember this one time. It was really funny. I had a, I had a team of leaders and on the, we, we were doing several days. And on one day they said, it's not our fault as leaders if our team aren't performing. They're a bunch of idiots. <laughs> and I said, whoa. I said, hang on a minute. I said, the only way you can tell if you're any good at leadership is by looking at your team. Don't look in the mirror. Look at your team. If they're not performing, you're not leading properly. Okay. Or maybe you're not recruiting properly. That's a whole other thing, but you're not leading properly. And they, 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 they ummed and aahed and they didn't really believe me. The next day I went in and they had the newspaper open and some football manager had just been sacked because the team hadn't been winning. And they were saying, you're absolutely right. That person should be sacked, blah, blah, blah. And I went, right. Excellent opportunity. What's the difference? You're sitting there saying that manager should be sacked because the team aren't performing. Yesterday, you told me it wasn't your fault if your team aren't performing. I said, what's the difference? And the, the, there was a silence in the room. And then they went, he's paid more than us. Whoa, what has that got to do with the price of fish? Give me a break, you know. So I think it's absolutely vital. You have to be able to have difficult conversations. Now, difficult conversations, in actual fact, whenever I'm um, writing, this is what's going to be coming up in your leadership program that we're doing. We're going to do this, we're going to do this, and then eventually we're going to talk about correcting performance, i.e. When you, <laughs> when you want to murder but need to motivate. How can you correct but maintain motivation? Absolutely vital. I think one of the challenges is people don't understand how to have difficult conversations, and I don't care whether... And what you do find is you get two types of leaders, one who say, I'm really good at building relationships, but I'm really rubbish at correcting performance. In other words, they're really, really nice, but they don't like doing the difficult bit. And others who go, "I'm uh, well, I'm not really so much into building relationships, but I'm great at correcting performance. I go, well, you think you're great at correcting performance, but you're probably leaving a trail of devastation behind you. You just don't realize it. Uh, and the, the point with the having difficult conversations is that you should be able to say anything to anybody so long as you say it the right way. I, are you focusing? This isn't about disciplines. Disciplinaries is something different. They're taken over by legal uh, rules and regulations. It shouldn't even get to that point if you're doing it right. But there, actually, there are some major techniques with handling difficult conversations. And one of them is just about actually talking about what you want from somebody instead of what you don't want from somebody. It's as simple as that. But from the moment we were born, we've learned to point out the problem and not focus on solutions. So we say to our kids, you've got your shoes on the wrong feet. There's two things wrong with that. One is we're just pointing out a problem and the other is it is purely a statement. And my kids were so awkward, they'd have just gone, yep, it's the way I like them. And then they'd have, you know, got blisters. Uh, as opposed to if you pop your shoes on the other feet, you'll be able to beat your brother in a race. Simple as that. And it's a case of people get the theory and then I give them a load of examples. I say, right, this is an opening thing. What, how do you think you should do it? And they instantly revert back to, although they're trying to say it quite nicely, let me point out what you're doing wrong and how awful it is. And one of the things I, one of the, I guess, philosophical questions I like to kind of propose to people is, if you could change a member of your team's behavior without them ever knowing that they'd been wrong in the first place, is that okay? And there's this, usually this big debate on it. And people come back with, with two kind of different solutions. Well, one is, well, no, nobody can change unless you tell them what they were doing wrong in the first place. And there are times, obviously, when that is important. But uh, I say, no, 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 that wasn't the question. The question was, if you could change their behavior, if you could, without them ever knowing, was that okay? 
And people can't get over this absolute desire to tell people they're wrong. You, you, you and I as speakers know that if you get a word on, and, and I don't put many words on any slides that I have. Most of my slides are pictures. Okay, I like the picture version. I like pictures. <laughs> I don't put words. But if I do put a word up there and it's got one spelling mistake in it, you know that 99% of your audience cannot hear what you're saying for the voice in their head that's going, that's spelt wrong. That's spelt wrong. Or you get a date wrong when you're speaking, because if you're anything like me, you get overexcited and sometimes your mouth gets a bit carried away. You know, uh, and people can't get over it. And, uh, you know, they queue up later on to tell you, you know, you can have done an hour's speech that was absolute pure gold, but you had, you know, 30 seconds where you lost the plot or something. They'll queue up to tell you. And we get we get so obsessed. And the idea is, are you actually trying to change behavior or are you trying to satisfy your desire to point out what's wrong? And once you can get that into your head, you can start having difficult conversations. And yes, sometimes you do end up telling them what went wrong. But if you start from the premise of what if I could do it if I couldn't, if I didn't, then we can move forward. And it suddenly makes life a lot easier because it's not an aggressive conversation. But we do. Uh, there's too many leaders who are busy, if you like, taking their wage for leadership and they're actually not doing the job. They're not picking people up. Because if you don't pick someone up on their performance, the rest of the team think, well, if that's the bar, then I'll just, why should I be working really, really hard while other people are getting away with it? Except some of the absolute players in your team who go, I don't care what they're doing. My own personal values say I'm going to do it right. And that 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 is pure gold. You want more of them in your team. Let's... Um... Let's go back to the, the, the vulnerability point. I, mm. I, I, I'm tempted to tell you about, by the way, uh, the moment recently when I started obsessing about a mistake on a slide. But if I go into that, this is really <laughs> going to sound like a therapy session. So let's... <laughs> um, but I, I said we go back to the vulnerability point. And what I want to do, I think there's been some really valuable... Uh, insights into the management element of leadership and uh, having those difficult conversations, keeping people on board from that perspective. And that's one element of taking your team with you. The other element of taking your team with you is innovating, collaborating, creating new ideas, not, not having a team that's waiting to be led, but a team that leads with you. I've got a talk coming up that, that you know about. I think you're, you're probably going to be there in Dublin uh, mm -hmm. at the end of September. And, and it's yeah. a, a new talk. I've, I've delivered it once uh, uh, for Welsh Government, but it was created for that conference in September on vulnerable leadership. And to give you a little sneak preview of the content, one of the things I'm going to talk about is leading from among people rather than leading from above them. Uh, and this is the audience uh, in, in Dublin is, is it's the Global Speakers Summit, as you know, so leading speakers from around the world. And I'm going to be talking to that audience as thought leaders and leaders of communities. When I worked with the Welsh Government, then they were leaders of government agencies and, and departments and so forth. So so they were that they were more traditional leaders as we would, would see them. But I think it works for both. So with that in mind, how easy or difficult is it to step off that pedestal that you referred to earlier that I referred to in that talk, uh, where we put leaders on a pedestal, we want to see them as above the fray, 
seeing ahead. Um, how how easy is it to move away from that and to be part of the team? Because from my perspective, the leader isn't the know-all. The leader isn't the person who has all the answers. The leader is the one who finds the answers from their team and beyond, who helps lead the discussion on the challenges and who makes the final decision. Is that happening and what's stopping it if it's not? Ooh, there's lots of different, there's lots of answers went through my head as you were um, asking that. Um, uh, one reminded me, actually, I think it depends on the culture of the countries you're in. So I was running some workshops for the BBC news, not team, those are the people in front of the camera, but the, the, the news people. The editorial um, and, team. Yeah, and, and it was interesting because we talked to quite a lot about this. And those who were based in the Middle East with teams where the culture is very hierarchical in these some particular countries. In fact, one guy said um, that um, it was so hierarchical um, and such a scary place when he first went there. He's got used to it now. He, um, a, a nephew of, of an employee came to uh, for a job interview, didn't get the job, and next time blew the place up. So it was like quite a scary place to be. And he said, if I don't show that I'm in control and command, then I'm gonna I lose their respect because of their culture. So I absolutely get that it depends on the culture. You know, I've never had anybody try and blow a place up because I didn't give them a job or because I'm you'd be scared to discipline, wouldn't you? Going, oh, don't kill me. <laughs> uh, so you know, it's really really tough. But depending, so it depends on the culture. Um, but certainly there needs the, one of the first things we need to do is get our ego under control. And I don't think that we realize quite how much our ego is involved in all of this, constantly worrying what other people are thinking, constantly feeling like because we've made a leader, we have to have all of the answers, but also the need to be needed. So I was working with a team uh, pre-lockdown. And there was one of their leaders who, who started the leadership course by saying, I haven't had a full holiday for 10 years. I don't have full weekends off because somebody always needs me. I always get a call. He said, how can I make sure that my team can actually work and have ideas without me? And of course, I, you instantly know, you and I instantly know, that the problem is not the team. The problem is his need to be needed. And, and the way he leads basically encourages them to do all of those things. And it took a long, long time. We started to work on it. We started to work on what were his beliefs about what leadership was. And he, it was, he was an, an older gentleman, um, very near to retirement, and, and actually was worried about, in some cases, what he was going to do if he retired. The whole place was going to collapse. Well, so he said he was worried. I mean, let's face it, it's a bit like, it's a bit like when you're a teenager and uh, you, you finish with your girlfriend or boyfriend. You really want them to go and join a monastery. You don't ever want to hear <laughs> that they're having good relationships. You want them to pine away in a corner somewhere. And we're Not just when you're a teenager, Heather. <laughs> we want to feel that we are needed and we have to get our ego out of the way we have to move our ego to one side otherwise we're never going to lead from among we're never going to sit teams down and ask for their opinions properly we're never going to be able to encourage people to say actually do you know what i think we might not be doing this quite correctly i've got another idea especially if lord forbid the 
idea of the way you were doing it came from you in the first place as a leader. Oh, boy. So we have to, first of all, start to recognize ego. We have to recognize when actually the reason we're putting the idea down is because we're feeling defensive because it was our idea or the reason that we're actually going back into the office at the weekend and they can't manage without us is because of us, not because of them. And we can't let it go. So that I think is, that's our first step. And then, and, and that takes a while. We have to actually build. Uh, so we're coming to the brain now. If we have to change, we have to change an emotion habit. One of the things that people often are very surprised about is when I talk about habits, I talk a lot about habits. And I say, give me examples of habits. Give me an example of a habit. And people come up with smoking or eating or, you know, scratching or whatever it can be. But they all come up with physical habits. Actually, we have at least three different types of habits. We have those physical habits, the way we walk, even our intonation, you know, whether we've talked with our hands or not, those are all habits. But actually, we also have emotional habits. When certain things happen, we feel a particular emotion. And then we say, oh, it's human nature. No, 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 no. That's learned behavior and it's a learned habit. Okay. And then we also have thought processing habits. When something comes into our brain, we've developed a habit. And it's not human nature necessarily. Otherwise, we would all think the same. Mindset, for instance, you will hear people say constantly, your mindset is a choice. Your mindset is a choice. I would like to correct that. I'm going to be a bit of a rebel here and say, no, your mindset is a habit. You know, we don't get up in the morning and choose our mindset particularly until we have realized that we had a habit of thinking negatively. We had a habit of and we developed it. Babies don't. Babies start to learn that. So that defensiveness as a leader is a habit. The need for power is a habit. Good news is we can reconnect in the brain. We can make different connections in the brain, but it takes repetition. It takes practice. Uh, it's in order for us to just as if you were to change your habit, let's say I've, I've done quite a lot of work, with sports teams. So form and formula one racing, maybe and golfers and people like that. Um, and when when their coach wants them to change a habit, what they do is they drill the new habit. They drill the skill and they build mental muscle memory and mental memory to do that. So when somebody passes the ball, I want you to do this with it. You don't just tell them and expect them to do it. You drill it. Well, we have to do exactly the same with our emotional habits and our thought processing habits. We actually have to drill the new skill. It's like a sliding doors moment. You remember the film Sliding Doors? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, anyone remembers that 1990s film for anyone who's too young listening to this? Far too young. Um, but um, at the Sliding Doors, there's the moment when Gwyneth Paltrow's character is about to get on a, a London tube and a child gets in her way. And at that moment, the film goes into two different timelines, one where she catches the train and one where she doesn't. And that three minute delay gives two completely different lives. And I, you sometimes wish there was a parallel universe, one where you did and one where you didn't, whatever it might be. But a habit has a cue moment. You have to identify that cue moment. Obviously, for a sports person, it's when the ball is passed or what have you. But for us, it's when somebody says something to us, probably, or when there's a person there. And we recognize that. We recognize that cue and we have to start practicing the new habit. And the more we practice it, the more we build the connections in the brain until eventually we develop muscle memory and we develop mental memory. Um, and, and we have to get our ego out of the way in order to, for us to be able to bring people along with us. I, fantastic answer, Heather. Really fascinating uh, and great insights. And yeah, I, I wanted to, to, to 
pull that back at the end to say, you know, the key point here is that if you want to take people uh, along with you, what you're focusing on is the work you do on yourself as a leader. It's not, uh, if you do this, this and this, you'll take people along with you. It's actually, you've got to understand what makes you tick. You can't just uh, run a training course where you say, here's three practical steps you can take to, to create more innovation among your team. You've got to do deeper work than that. Yeah, in fact, when when I was first asked to start running leadership programs, because when I started doing this, way, way back, 1996 or so, I first started running training courses in this particular subject, and it was basically on neuropsychology. We tended to call them motivational training courses. Who's got the budget for motivational training courses? <laughs> you know? uh, 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 but I said, oh, it applies to leadership too. And they started saying, can you run leadership courses? And I started, so the first thing I was doing, and I'm writing a new course, because I start to just study what's already out there because there's some brilliant stuff out there. So I started doing that. And I found that leadership falls into five, all leadership speeches or books or what have you tend to fall into one of five categories. Okay. Leading organizations. Yeah. So what you need to do to innovate, strategize, et cetera. Leading teams, norming, storming, performing or profiling or whatever it might be. Leading individuals, how to deal with people one-on-one and influencing skills. Because leadership, let's face it, is about influence, almost nothing more, nothing less. But there's two other really, really important layers. And one is personal leadership, which is who are you as a leader? Who do you want to be? What are your values? When people aren't around, what do you want them to say about you? When you put your head down on the pillow at night or if it's you're taking your last breath, what legacy do you want to have left? Okay. And then there's this piece, which is personal performance, just you as a human being, not a leader. And I've done those backwards because I think you start with understanding personal performance, your own brain, motivation, goals, how to be happy, how you program your brain stuff. Then you get into who am I as a leader? What are my values? What will I stand up for? When would I walk away from a role, even if my mortgage needed paying? When would the money just not be enough and I walk away? Hopefully, I would like to say any matter of principle, but some people go, well, you've got to pay your mortgage. I go, not at that cost. Then we need to understand about leading individuals, then leading teams, and then leading the organization. I think those are levels. I actually don't draw them as a one, two, three, four, five. I draw them as a circle, but in the middle is personal understanding personal behavior and performance. So, yeah, get yourself sorted out first. Definitely. I think that's a great note on which to, to end. Get yourself sorted out first. I think that's great advice in so many ways. Heather, it's been an absolute pleasure. I didn't overpromise. You certainly uh, over-delivered. Uh, and I've enjoyed it. it. it I've great. enjoyed being here, Andy. Good. I'm, I'm pleased about that. I, I should tell people that before we started recording, I said to Heather, I'll get to the end and then you'll say thank you if you've enjoyed it. So <laughs> uh, I'm glad you did. And I certainly I enjoyed have. the conversation. Uh, like many of these, didn't necessarily go down the paths that I expected. And, and that I take as a good thing because there's nothing worse than a truly predictable conversation. Great <laughs> insights. I've learned new things. I couldn't predict where it would go. Uh, and I think there's lots of people to take away. Thank you for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you. So so thanks to Heather. I, I, I genuinely mean that. I thought that flew by. Uh, there was more I could have asked. Maybe we'll have to get Heather back at some point on the podcast and look at another angle. Uh, as I mentioned, I don't normally trail my next episode, mainly because of paranoia that something else will get in the way. Uh, but I'll be talking next week to Bernard Savage of size 10 and a half boots. 
And my first question will be, why is your business called Size 10 and a Half Boots? I do know the answer. And Bernard is someone I have known since our 20s. We do uh, very similar work, uh, but we didn't meet through that. We met through mutual friends. And we're going to be exploring that line between personal and professional. Uh, and we might even reflect back on our trip to Headingley for the cricket a few weeks ago, where we agreed to do the episode. So join us for that. I think it'll be a fascinating conversation. Uh, and I will see you again soon on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great connected leadership tips.